0: Hello, everybody. I'm Ian Abernethy, and thank you for your patience in waiting for this uh, podcast. A uh, few of you have been in touch asking if the YouTube videos... I've been doing a lot more talking YouTube videos recently, and people asking if uh, they are sub- uh, superseding the podcast, and the, that's a categorical no. Uh, I found the YouTube videos a useful way to reach a, um, a, an audience for certain key topics. Uh, but the attention span of YouTube viewers is limited, I have found. You know, so once you get beyond 10 minutes, you know, it doesn't really get a massive amount of, of views. And if you want to go deep on a topic, uh, then podcasts are the way to do it. And for me, you know, I like to explore topics thoroughly and, and in depth. And the podcasts remain the best way to do that. The podcasts are, as I said before, the, the, the favorite thing I produce. Out of all the things I produce, podcasts are the ones I enjoy putting get, together the most. It's just simply been, you know, been busy on all fronts. Uh, the good news is, though, that I have a few recorded. Uh, I've got an interview with uh, Jamie Club, which I know you're going to love. Uh, I've got one on the uh, the law ready to roll out. I need to record an interview as part of that podcast which I haven't done yet but um, um, more on that in a minute or two. Uh, and I've also just done one uh, today as it happens with uh, my friend Mike Turbitt. Uh, whenever we do the Q&A podcasts there's always lots of questions on uh, teaching children and um, uh, Mike is you know an expert when it comes to structuring uh, karate training for children. Love what Mike does. I've seen the standards of, that he reaches with the, the children that he's got so uh, Mike kindly agreed to come on the podcast and, and discuss his 10 key precepts for teaching children so that'll be out soon so it's been a bit of a famine on the podcast front uh, but prepare yourself for a feast because there's a lot, uh, a lot coming uh, at you very soon uh, just want to mention a few podcasts as well so if you are a podcast listener you like uh, in-depth uh, discussions martial discussions uh, there's a few podcasts you should be listening to uh, in addition to mine obviously uh, and if you're, if, if you're not then these are some that I'd like to recommend now I, I'm going to miss a few of my favourite podcasts out here because there's just obviously never enough time to um, list all the ones that I like because there's so many good martial arts podcasts out there but these are a, a few that I'd just like to, to briefly mention right Um Main reason is because some of them are relatively new or you may not have heard of yet, but... Uh, first podcast is uh, uh, Protecting the Front Line by Jamie Club. So, Protecting the Front Line. Uh, as you'll find out if you haven't already you know, heard from from Jamie, Jamie's one of the most uh, thoughtful, in-depth martial thinkers I know. He's a true martial philosopher. Uh, that's why we've got him on an episode of this podcast soon. Uh, I've been pushing him for a while to start his own podcast, which he's, uh, I'm pleased to say he's done, and it just hasn't disappointed. It's, it's really in-depth really good stuff you know it's a thinking martial artist podcast so be sure to check that out it's fantastic uh what i'm sure that a lot of you will be aware of is the uh, kung fu podcast by tim smith uh, tim's a friend of mine from uh, from the, the state uh, i mean called the kung fu podcast because that's tim's background but it doesn't matter what martial art you do there's so much good information in that podcast uh, it, honestly he amazes me at how quickly he gets these things out and the the quality of the information the quality of the recording it's, it's fantastic really really good um, so you've got if you don't know of that podcast, you've got a lot to catch up on. So if I could recommend, if you, if you want a place to start, start with the Babishi ones that that, that Tim did re- recently. So he did a series of three podcasts, I think it was, on the the Babishi and the, its history and relevance. And oh man, that was so good. So as a karate person, you, you'll you'll really love those. Um, I'm about to share with you uh, my appearance on the Wim Demir podcast which again if you're not listening to Wim's podcast uh, generally you should so I had an interview with Wim Wim's been kind enough to allow me to share it in this feed so that's what we're about to all have a listen to Um, so if you've already heard it you can switch off when this introduction's finished unless you want to listen to it again of course Uh, but you want to check out Wim's podcast generally again really like Wim Um, uh, very thoughtful very honest very pragmatic in his thinking Uh, again I want Wim to come on this podcast so this talk of us having a, um, a, a conversation on this one as well but yeah check out the Wim podcast fantastic stuff uh, another friend of mine who's uh, started a podcast is uh, the Striking Thoughts podcast by Lee Sims so Lee's the guy I want to interview on the law podcast uh, Lee works in the legal profession he's written books on uh, self-defense law he has a black belt under me. I was on his grading panel for his fourth, Dan. Uh, bright guy. Very, very articulate. Very skilled martial artist uh, who's recently started his, uh, his own podcast. And, and, again, I think you'll, you'll love it. Very, very impressive stuff. And the final one I want to mention now is the Martial Journeys podcast by my friend uh, Gretchen Carlson. So she's done, I think we five episodes of that now uh, and again, uh, so good. R- really good stuff. Uh, covers a wide range of topics. Very accessible. Very easy to listen. Uh, the last one, I listened to it yesterday. She did, uh, The most recent one was on uh, breathing and uh, in the martial arts. Uh, just excellent stuff. Really, really good. I love the way she explains it. Um, I agree with every word that she says. So that's another one you want to be subscribing to so you don't miss out on anything so so yeah the, the, and again, there's, there's loads of others you know you have lots of martial arts podcasts but these are ones you know at the moment if you're not subscribers if you haven't heard about them uh, you definitely should be so protecting the frontline by Jamie Club, Kung Fu podcast by Tim Smith uh, the Wim Demir podcast by Wim Demir the Striking Thoughts podcast by Lee Sims and the Martial Journeys podcast by Gretchen Carlson I, I asked Gretchen if you do a little uh, intro for me uh, to put in this podcast which she did so you're going to hear that in a moment uh, and then after that you will uh, hear the uh, Wim Demir podcast so I had a conversation with Wim uh, covered a wide range of topics uh, I'm sure you'll find it interesting uh, so thanks very much for your support of the podcast and I'll be back with a dedicated Ian Abernethy podcast soon so we've got plenty recorded just need to get the editing done which I hope to get done on the next few weeks uh, keep an eye on the feed because there'll be a lot coming at you quick and fast all right so thank you very much and I'll now hand you over to Gretchen then I'll hand you over to Wim
1: This is Gretchen Carlson from the Martial Journeys podcast. If you listen to only one martial arts podcast, who am I kidding, listen to the Ian Ebernethy podcast. But if you listen to two martial arts podcasts, maybe give the Martial Journeys podcast a try.
0: Welcome to the Wim Demir podcast. We talk about martial arts, self-defense, and a whole lot more. And now, your host, Wilm Demir.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the podcast. I have an exciting show for you guys today because I finally managed to get somebody on the show that I wanted to uh, invite for the interview for a long time, Mr. Ian Abernathy. Ian, how are you doing?
0: I'm very good, thank you, Wim. Thanks for inviting me on.
1: Uh, it's it's a pleasure. And and just for the listeners, um, Ian is in the UK. I'm in Belgium. There's a little bit of lag between us in uh, the Skype connection. So if if you, you feel that it's a little bit awkward, sometimes the silences, that's just uh, the internet doing its thing and relaying our voices to each other. So don't worry about that. Okay. Um, Ian, I'm just going to get right into it because uh, as you know, we have a bunch of questions to get to that I think uh, the listeners will find very interesting. To hear your responses about. So first off, could you give a little bit of uh, a background on you know how you started in your training, what you've been doing, what you've been up to, and so on?
0: Yeah, no problem. So I, I started when I was around uh, eleven years old. Um friends at school were doing karate, like a lot of eleven year old kids, you get into your first year of fights and scrapes, so I decided, you know, this should probably be good at this. So around about the same time as well, I think Enter the Dragon head on T V and then obviously the my world went martial arts nuts so I decided you know I'm quite a quiet kid so I decided okay I'll try and learn martial arts from uh, I'll get some books and read up on it and of course all the books tell you that you can't learn martial arts from a book so I thought you know I've got to go along to some some classes so I went along to the classes that my friends had gone to so it was um, a guy Doug James who's an a eighth dan in Wadaroo karate and that was my uh, first class, I hated it. I, I got punched in the stomach and dropped and just thought, this isn't for me. Uh, went back to the second one, though, and, and loved it. Just really, you know, that's when the bug kind of hit. So that was uh, my initial uh, beginning. So I think nowadays I'm probably better known for the, the like the, the bunkai kind of work. So as I progressed, you know, the kata was always fascinating to me the self-defense side of things, the application, the use of it was something I always found fascinating. So I think those two interests kind of bled together a little bit, you know, so it was natural for me to kind of pursue, pursue those elements uh, as a result of that, you know, I did, uh, I've done some cross training in um, uh, judo to improve the, the grappling side of things. I also started training under uh, Jeff Thompson, um, probably well known to most of your listeners. I think he was a big influence on the self defence thinking in the UK and training under Peter Considine as well. I'm still training under Peter on a on a regular basis to bring you know more of the reality based side of things into into you know what I was doing, and then kind of develop my own approach to the traditional arts, which you know proved relatively popular with people, so I've shared a lot of it via Facebook and YouTube and podcasts and and things like that, so that's currently where I am.
1: Okay, and if I'm not mistaken, so you're teaching full-time now?
0: Yeah, I've I've been for about the last 12 12 years, so about 12 years ago, I became apparent to me that uh, I didn't have enough time in the day to do all the things I wanted to do. So I'd talk to Jeff Jeff, Jeff Thompson. I was say, I just can't keep up. You know, there's not enough hours in the day. And he just said, well, quit your job. And I kind of laughed. And I oh, serious, you means quit your job. And then I kind of left that training session. I thought, yeah, well, maybe, you know, I could, I could make a, a, a living at it. So I did the maths and worked out that I, I effectively couldn't. Uh, I, there wasn't enough money coming, being generated by the martial arts side of it. But I just decided, okay, if I take a leap and I've got more time to apply to it, I might be able to, you know, fulfill my first love of doing martial arts full time and also make sure that I can provide for me and mine in the process. So that, that's what I've been doing for the last twelve years. I've been full time at it.
1: Yeah, that's, that's pretty awesome because, uh, I, and I know, you know, what it's like. Obviously, um, I'm a, I'm a personal trainer, so I've been teaching martial arts for, uh, I think about twenty five years now, uh, actually, um, because I started really young. And I remember when, when I started uh, as a self-employed uh, teacher, the, when, when my friends would tell me like, dude, you're going to be bankrupt in about a year. You can never make a living <laughs> out of this and <laughs> you're going to be unemployed. I'm like, okay, okay. So, and we're almost 30 years later now. So um, I'm really happy that, that you could do the same thing and and follow your dream, basically.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, it's, you know, it's sometimes in the early days in particular, it was quite a precarious existence, you know. You, oh, yeah. you didn't know, literally, it was at times, you know, okay, I need a seminar booking soon, or I'm not going to be able to pay the mortgage this month. But but now, thankfully, I'm I'm, I'm lucky enough that I, I kind of, I know I've got about a year's worth of, 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 of work ahead of me, and it's, you know, it's, it's a real joy just to spend, you know. It's, the, it's not a great way to make money, but martial arts is a great way to spend your time. So if you can make money while you're doing it, then I can, you know, Means that I've got more time to devote to the things I love doing. So, yeah, no, it is. It's a, it's a, it's a, a an interesting life. It's an enjoyable way to make a living. Certainly beats being an electrician anyway
1: Yeah, yeah, I can, I, I can only agree with that. Um, and and speaking of, so you mentioned it already, and I think that's the first topic that we we might want to tackle. Uh, so you mentioned bunkai. Could you could you explain what bunkai is for the people who aren't familiar with uh, Japanese martial arts?
0: Yeah, no problem. Well, the it. it, it The word uh, bunk-eye literally means something like... To chop into little pieces to gain understanding or to analyse. So, so that's what the word means. But, but in karate circles, um, it tends to mean the applications of the the traditional form. So, as a result of the a- analysis of the form, you, know, you, you you look at how it would be used practically. So, uh, strictly speaking, the word for that should be oyo. But, but in, in common parlance, bunkai is taken to mean uh, the applications of the traditional forms within the within conflict. So I think for me, the way that a lot of modern karate ends up getting taught, and I think this is common to all martial arts, we, we focus on fighting uh, each other, which you know is a worthwhile and valuable pursuit in and of itself. But because of that, because then karate guys are fighting karate guys, we do a lot of mid to long range kicking and punching, and all that kind of close range, uh, trapping, gripping, locking, choking, strangling, throwing, all that kind of stuff that was part of the old art, Gets kind of put to one side, really. So for someone who like me who likes all of it and wants the, the big package, analyzing the old forms can give us a window back into the old school karate. So that that's essentially what bunkai is. It's it's using the traditional forms that we've been bequeathed to get a glimpse into the kind of the old school methods and then kind of practice them them today.
1: Yeah, and and how does that work? So uh, you you go to a class and you as a teacher say, okay, we're going to work on bunkai. So what does a class look like or how how do you uh, approach that, practically speaking?
0: Yeah, so I think well, I can use, I've got a four-stage model is roughly what it's based on. And I think that probably is the easiest way to explain it. So what most, I think it would be fair to say, uh, most karate people do is they do the forms as a, an end in themselves. So the objective of forms is to get good at doing forms, which is never the traditional way of doing it. So in my four-stage model, I go okay. The first thing we do is we learn the form, so we do that. But then the next stage up, stage two, is well, what do those motions represent? You know, so we, we then with a partner we'll practice okay, this is the lock, this is the throw, this is the choke, this is what's going on with this movement, and then we'll, we'll kind of practice that. So that will be the second layer. The third layer is we say, right, it's not just showing us a specific technique, its main purpose is an illustration of principle. So there's lots of combative concepts and ideas and principles been expressed by this movement. So so let's talk about you know tactical positioning, let's talk about things like leverage, let's talk about things like unbalancing, proprioception, all those kind of things, and look at how we can expand on the example that kind of gives us, and then we'll give that kind of free rein. And then the fourth level is, is what I call his live experience of doing it. We'll say, well, having learnt those techniques and those combative principles and explored them, we'll now give them free rein in live practice. You know, so um, so in, in a given class, I I tend to teach you know the forms and the partner drills um, and live and semi-live drills they all kind of link together with kata being the 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 central hub so um as a result of that you know people can sometimes depending on what moment you walk into my class it can look very different so we can be hitting pads and that will be based on the methods of kata we can be sparring and that will be based on the methods of kata we can be doing flow drills and that will be based on you know on the methods of kata but it's trying to get back to that kind of kata centric approach really
1: okay okay it sounds good you you mentioned uh, principles. Could could you give a couple of examples of uh, principles that are that are applicable to uh, to the bunkai work you mentioned?
0: Yeah. So so um, a, a good example would be um, so in in traditional karate they have a word like embi and that means kind of like uh, the directions that you move when you do the fl- uh, the, the, the the kata. So like the floor pattern. Now, the common error on that, and it's even documented as an error way back in, you know, the 1930s, the old masters wrote, you know, don't think of it this way because it's wrong. Uh, But people tend to think, you know, that when you do a form, there's a guy attacking from the left then there's a guy attacking from the right, you know, and you're in the middle as people attack you along the compass points. Now, and that was written off as nonsense by one of the old masters. Uh, that's a, the word he uses is it's nonsense uh, by Kenwa Mabuni in the 1930s. What the angles in the cat are supposed to represent is the angle you assume in relation to your enemy. So whenever we're doing these movements, if a movement goes to side in the form, what it's really saying is you need to be at your enemy's side when you, you do this. So we would look at a, an example of where we, we're cutting that all, angles. And then to me, there's these two core principles that flow from that. You've got... Um, One is always keep the enemy in front of you, but never be in front of the enemy. So I want all of my weapons pointing at him, and I don't want his weapons pointing at me. So that's, that's, that's a principle. I try and position myself so he's on my center line, but I'm off his. And another principle that we would have is that we move towards what we know and away from what we don't know. So if I've made contact with the enemy's left arm, it makes sense for me to shift in that direction away from his right arm. So I'm away from what I don't know and I'm towards what I know. So these are kind of like principles. And then through the examples that the kata gives us, we we like any habit. If, if you do it often enough, it becomes habitual. So through our kata examples and bunkai examples, we do it again and again and again and again. So that these principles become intuitive. They become hardwired. So then when we practice in live and semi-live ways, then we should be using uh, those examples to inform our movement. So that would that would be one one example of, of like the principles those two principles of tactical positioning which are recorded in the kata through the angles that we move when we do them
1: that makes makes perfect sense and um i come from a different background obviously i had a little bit of judo and karate um and jujitsu, sorry um but my main my main arts have always been chinese martial arts traditional martial arts and for the past 20 years mostly uh practical tai chi chuan so with a heavy emphasis on self-defense and and we have the same thing in in um in some of the forms there are parts uh, in which you step back as you do a certain technique but in the application you actually have to go forward and it's the same thing uh, that i've encountered then talking to people and uh, other practitioners often em- um, emphasize that well no you have to do the application exactly as you see it in the form um where i know for for a fact that uh, at the very least in our style that's certainly not the case and from what i've seen in many other styles the same thing applies the, the, the footwork uh, that you do the the movement, the footwork patterns that, that you can draw uh, in, in, a, in a diagram, if you like, doesn't necessarily represent the direction, like you said, uh, that you have to go into when you apply the technique.
0: Yeah, no, that's not exactly right you know so because you you, i mean again the word bunkai is quite useful because it it literally translates us to chop into little pieces to gain understanding so when we're looking at the form we've got to chop it into little pieces to understand what's going on but you've got these 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 steps in the kata that effectively link these disparate sections together so i call them linking steps the the foot movement itself has no uh, direct combative application it's just combining two unrelated sequences if you like and then also what most karate forms tend to do, they go so far forwards, turn round and come back the other way. And, and a common question I get asked is, well, what's the meaning of the turn? And I said, well, the meaning of the turn is that the sensei that designed this form couldn't afford a bigger dojo. He was going to run into the wall if he carried on moving. So he just turns around and goes back in the opposite direction. So I call it the you know sensei couldn't afford a bigger dojo turn. you know so not all of them are directly combative it's when you chop them into little pieces and say well okay what's the arm position what's the body shift what's the angle I'm in so yeah I'm sure it's it, I mean it's, it's to me it's, it's I, I would see this as being I mean I've no experience of Tai Chi but I would I, I would imagine it would have to be the same because you're limited to how you can yeah. construct a a, a solar form and record these things you know so it, they're bound to have some common principles you would think.
1: Yeah, there's actually a quite fun uh, story about that um, in Tai Chi circles. Where if I'm, rec- if I'm not if I'm if I'm if I if i do not misremember, it's about a uh, a sword form. And at a certain point, there's a jump backwards. And uh, one of the students asks his teacher, "Well, why do we jump backwards?" And the teacher didn't have an answer. So he goes to his teacher. He doesn't know. He goes to his teacher, and this goes on for a little while, obviously, until uh, they can't go back anymore because the teacher passed away, but his wife is still alive. So they ask her, do you know why we do that jump backwards? He says, it's very easy. Do you remember where we used to live? And we trained there in, in that room. It was very small. So instead of my husband actually stabbing the sword into a wall every time he did that, that part <laughs> of the form, everybody jumped back and they jumped back because you could quickly then move on to the rest of the form. And um, yeah. I've, I've seen this many times, stuff like that in uh, in my own style with, with uh, practitioners that, have interpreted things very differently from uh, the way they were thought, um, and in and, and, and in many other sides as well, obviously. But it's actually for, for us, it's a, a part of the tradition is called the true transmission, and and true transmission means that you pass on the art correctly, while not holding back information or not just interpreting it any any way you like uh because then stuff gets lost or you might actually break the system and turn it turn it into something that it was never meant to be. And and that kind of leads me to my next question. So um I'm guessing. I, I haven't kept up, but I'm guessing that you you might have gotten some critique from some traditionalists every now and then. Is that fair to say?
0: It, it 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 has happened, yes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, so I I want to just let you talk a little bit about that. So how how do you? I'm I'm sure a bunch of traditional traditionalists will will then say, well, no, he's uh, completely misinterpreting this, and, and you shouldn't do that to the forms, and you cannot change them. You have to keep them the way they are, and pass them through the ages into time and blah blah blah. How do you react to that? What, what's your stance on this?
0: Well, the the way the way that I um. Well, I think you've got two kinds of traditionalists. I think you, you've got what a true traditionalists, in my view, and then what pseudo traditionalists. Um, so I would regard myself as a traditionalist, even though others may 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 not. And my the way that I tend to deal with it is, is any um, conversation about that is I, I tend to quote the past masters back at them. <laughs> so I think, you know, so for example, with the angles, you know, pe- people say, you know, well, the angles in the cat, no, 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 no. My sensei told me that the guy attacks from the left and right. Well, I say, well, okay, I'll- Mabuni said that the angles in kata were not well understood. And this has led to some people saying things like this cat moves in eight directions. So it is for fighting eight people or some other such nonsense. So I go, that's Mabuni saying that. That's the founder of Shitorio. So so I-, I tend not to argue it from my own kind of position. I just said, this is what the old master said. And as regard that change, there's like Gitchin Funakoshi, who's, you know, Regarded as you know the father of modern karate, um, he said um the, the world changes, times change, and obviously martial arts must change too. You know they, they had built into it this idea of um, sensible, balanced, you know kind of evolution was was in there. So yeah, that, that's the way I tend to do it. Is you know when if you look at traditional you know it means adhering to a long established procedure so my argument would be well the longer the procedure has been established the more traditional it is so if i can quote back to you what the masters were saying you know eighteen, ninety, 90 100 200 years ago if you're talking to me what they've done since 1960s onwards that's not traditional or not as as traditional you know
1: no that, that makes perfect sense and i think you you, you hit a really important point here mentioning that change is is an integral part of uh of traditional martial arts um i I have a friend uh, a dear friend who who practices a a a very traditional style um and and they have it actually built in into their procedures on 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 adapting to changing times adapting to how different people fight uh and and so on and and uh, for instance um just to give you an example what we have nowadays when uh, when when you look back in time um over here in the west in Europe and so on um asian martial arts weren't all that big and we had but we had a strong um tradition of boxing and wrestling more boxing here in Europe maybe than wrestling in the US it might have been a little bit uh, the opposite or more even uh but that is what a lot mm. of people would consider to be fighting or self defense and then we have martial arts that, that become a little more prevalent here. And then that becomes a little bit more ingrained here in, 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 for instance, the Netherlands, you had a huge influx of, uh, Muay Thai and kickboxing practitioners. So that changed public perception a little bit. And now you can see it in the US, especially, uh, but also in Europe, how mixed martial arts is basically becoming the default of, okay, how do you fight? Well, that's what you use. And, as traditional hmm. martial artists, I think uh, it's only sensible that you that you change along with that, because otherwise you become obsolete. And and, and just quickly, uh, another point to that, uh, and that reminds me of an interview with Danny Santo, and uh, he mentioned that somebody asked him, well, why does uh, Jeet Kune Do, the art that Bruce Lee created, have so many defenses against a sidekick? And and he said, well, because back in the day, that's what everybody was throwing. Everybody was doing sidekicks. <laughs> Um, so you had to figure out how to defend against that nowadays, especially since, uh, let's say the 1980s, uh, when it started, the, the, the Muay Thai, uh, kicking came into Vogue and that changed everything tremendously. And now you see the sidekick actually coming back a little bit again, especially in mixed martial arts. So everything changes, everything slowly changes. So, um, and, and just, you know, tagging along with that, um, how do you view the the way that for instance uh from your perspective with karate and bunkai that you handle the the way uh mixed martial artists uh are basically slowly becoming becoming the norm let's say the standard of how the average person thinks a fight should be
0: yeah, well, I I the, 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 the I don't think for the the, the doesn't really address that. There there are there are, there are bits that do, that bits that don't. So um, there's there's uh, two of the old masters like um, Itosu and uh, Motobu were the ones who, who defined his. Because uh, um, I was marking the difference between what I call consensual violence and non-consensual violence. So if if someone agrees to have a fight, then that that changes quite quickly because they can they have an expectation of what a fight can be they can define what a win is all like that kind of stuff and then for the non-consensual violence that's just somebody wants to smash somebody else's face in, you know and it, 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 i find statistically i mean if you look at the crime stats that's not varying much at all you know there's no epidemic of triangle chokes or ankle locks or anything like that since the ufc started so for my karate i i I want it to cover as much as we can across the board. So the, the cat I put in that non-consensual ex- violence box, and that's what that's for. And then for the, the, the fighting or the dueling or, or, or that kind of stuff, all well, that would be separate, you know. So that uh, we've brought in elements from uh, from the judo and the boxing and all this kind of stuff to form there. But the, the cat that kind of sits astride. I mean, there's some crossover because a throw is a throw and a lock is a lock. But in terms yeah. of their objectives, I try and keep them a little bit separate if I can.
1: Well and and that makes perfect sense to me and and I'm actually looking at um an article that you wrote on your your website and I'll I'll link to that in the show notes where you list uh, a, a bunch of concepts that you use in uh, for the bunkai and, and number one is all kata applications are designed to end the confrontation there and then which is a huge difference with a mixed martial arts bout where you can const- obviously if you want if you can knock the guy out with one punch that'd be awesome but you have three to five five minute rounds to construct a victory as opposed to it's got to be over as quickly as possible or somebody might die um or somebody might pull a knife or his friend might come along and hit you from behind or whatever else uh, bad can happen so um could you talk a little bit more about about that first rule that first concept that you put up so yeah, yeah. applications well, uh have to end it right then and there
0: well well, that's, and, and that, that that's a, um, a requirement of the problem that you, you dealing with you know so I, I think one of my kind of criticisms of martial artists generally is what they tend to do is they start with a prepackaged solution then try and apply it to every problem where i think the way we should do it is the other way around we should say well what's the problem and then what's the best solution so if i'm sparring with one of my friends and you're right you know, i've got time i can or i can test them we've got back and forth motion i can uh faint and see what responses they come back to me with I can try and use the training against them we've got time we can play that game of chess which is an enjoyable and fun part of it Um, self-defense wise then obviously that's not the objective because the objective isn't to win the fight the objective is to make sure I don't get harmed so, because third parties can get involved, because weapons can get involved, because there's you know all kinds of legal problems and everything else. My aim is I want it finished as quickly as I possibly can. So there's no, um, I wouldn't, you know, you're not putting up a guard, you're not p- bouncing back and forth with the footwork. Uh, if I can escape, then again, we need live drills where we practice uh, escaping and looking for, for, for escape. So that, that, that's the idea because, the, um, well, I'll, I'll forgive the quotations. Uh, Itosu, who was uh, really, Old master, very influential. Modern karate is what it is because of him. Uh, in 1908, he wrote, uh, Karate is not intended to be used against a single adversary. It is a method of avoiding injury by using the hands and feet should one by chance be confronted by a villain or a ruffian. So he's saying, you know, the karate of his time is not for outfighting a single opponent, it's for avoiding harm in criminal scenarios, if you like. So that's why when we come to look at the cat, we need to say, well, that's, this is the solution to that problem. Now, obviously, you know, the cultures change a little bit and laws change the weapons change. So th- there's those influences. But in terms of, you know, the human body, human anatomy, human emotion, it's pretty much consistent.
1: Yeah. Uh, and I, th- I think, I mean, again, I'm, I'm in total agreement here. Um, if you look at the, the context of a, of a mixed martial arts or boxing or kickboxing match, as opposed to like you say, you know, uh, defense and, and the, in, in cell defense, it is a very good assumption to make that if there's one opponent, there's going to be a second one as well. And if there mm-hmm. isn't, that's awesome. But if there is at the very least, you are trying to, uh, handle such a scenario as opposed to be surprised by it. Whereas in the cage or in the ring, there's no such thing. You don't have to think about it, which completely changes the way you fight. And, and then the argument is always, well, you guys are saying that, you know, mixed martial arts can't, can't work for self defense. It's not what, that's not what we said. Uh, what you say then is, well, it's, it's a very specific, like you say, solution to a specific problem in a very, very specific context and environment. Whereas when you change that environment and that context to self defense and, and having to, um, you know, all of a sudden when you're ambushed uh, while you're walking in the street and defend yourself, well, how, how do you fight then? Um and then, okay, well, that this is what I do. I'd, I'd, I'd punch the guy, uh, fake high, go low, um, go to the ground and put him in an armbar. It's excellent. Okay, how do you do that when you've got your girlfriend standing there next to you? So you're going to hmm. leave her alone while the second guy is coming after her and you're lying on the ground for that armbar? Yeah, but then I would, and then we get into this whole discussion, and the point is not the discussion, but the point is that, <laughs> um, well, if you can accept that if one factor changes, your girlfriend's there or you're all by yourself and you fight differently can you accept that just the mere fact that that we need to take this stuff into account small change in environment and context huge change in the way that you have to defend yourself and sometimes people are responsive to that and and i guess you've experienced that too and sometimes they are not
0: yeah well and i think yeah and i get that because i think sometimes what 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 you've just said and what i say and people like us say is yeah the, the optimum solution will depend on the specific nature of the problem and you need to carefully exactly. define the problem otherwise your solution will be wrong so was, but, but but it's not a judgment and i think sometimes people hear the judgment so when i you know i'll for example you'll you can use that you know taking someone to the ground is not a good idea in self-defense what people hear is ground fighting isn't good but that's not what i've said and i, I know that's you know but not you have said, you know, in a one on one fight, taking them to the ground and beating them there can be a highly effective way to do it. It would make absolute perfect sense to do it that way if it's guaranteed to stay one on one and if it's, you know, the other person's agreed and you know there's going to be no weapons and no third parties. But if, if these things are a possibility, we need to factor them. And I think if martial artists were, were, were um, open to this, what would happen is we'd all say, right, self defense is going to look pretty much the same for every single martial artist because we've got similar. You know the same problem, so we end up fi- coming to similar solutions, and then from there we can, you know, judo guys want to find out who's the best thrower, and punches want to find, uh, boxers want to find out who's the best puncher, and you can explore all of that and have great fun doing it. But we can just kind of focus on that self defence box. Not everything needs to have relevance to self defence to have value either. You know, I do loads of things I have no value to self defence at all, but but I, I still find them massively enjoyable and massively rewarding
1: yeah well, i'm again in 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 total agreement um and, and i'm not going to go over the whole list of the article but I, just just a, a few points that i want to hit and and the second point you mentioned is uh, all parts of a movement are significant and the reason why i want to mention this is because my teacher said the same thing but in a slightly different fashion he says there's no wasted movements in our forms there's mm. nothing that is superfluous there's nothing that that is there for no reason Um, And I very much agree with that. The trick is obviously not finding what the reason is. So could you talk a little bit about that? All parts of the movement are significant.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, and obviously that article is aimed at, um, obviously, my fellow traditional um, karateka. Uh, And I think part of the problem comes from the way that karate has been taught from like 1950s onwards, where you've had people in lines almost like soldiers on parade. They'll, They'll do a movement The instructor can only watch one or two people move, but he can look at the final position of everybody in the room. So he checks the final position and, no, you need your hand forwards a little bit. You need a bit more weight on your back foot, right? Everybody moves. He can see two people move, and then he checks the end position of everyone in the room. So over time, what happens is the end position becomes the objective. So when people think about the movement, they tend not to think about how they got into that position. They just tend to think about the position. So, you know, and and therefore, when they look at the applications of it, they're saying, well, what's this move all about? They tend to look at just the final posture and they tend to forget, well, how did your weight shift? Not just the end position of the arms. How did the arms get there? What was that backhand doing? Why is it open? Why is it closed? And I think any good um, understanding of the movement should be able to explain every single part of what's going on. Whereas what we tend to find within the karate world is there's a lot of, well, just because, you know, why do you put your hand to your shoulder before taking it away if it's just a block? Well, just because. but but the, yeah. So that's what I'm kind of trying to get people to think about there is you need to look at the movement in its entirety. And when you do that, it all starts to make a lot more sense.
1: No, yeah, I agree with that. And and uh, I was just going, uh, looking at a, uh, another point where you mentioned, uh, number five, is that the stances are a vital component of the techniques where you, you, you also... Um, Explaining what you just said in part is that a lot of people just look at the end position and they don't really look well how mm-hmm. do you got there how do you get there and and that is something that I teach uh, my students uh, um, because I, I also te- teach a mixed martial arts class one of the things that is extremely hard to explain until you have your first fight uh, and then I'm talking about a, a competitive fight uh, in the cage um, is that how fatigue hits you and one of the ways in which fatigue hits you is that you can focus on where you start with your punch or your kick. You focus on the end point, how you, uh, where your fist or your foot needs to land. But everything in between becomes really hazy. And that's where you see the big haymakers instead of the tight hooks and all that stuff. And and one of the things that I try to do is address that by being, uh, like you said, very focused on, okay, what happens in between? Because that is, at the very least, as important as where do you start and um, and where do you uh, where do you end with your technique? Yeah, no, I
0: agree, and and, and that, that's definitely um, for the stances with the. My, my favorite quote on stances is from a guy called Genwa Nakasone, who compiled a book in the, called Karate Do Tai Kan. He compiled this book in the nineteen twenties, and and uh, Gichin Funakoshi in that book had his twenty principles of karate. Uh, I think it was the seventeenth. I could be wrong, but what one of them was. Uh, beginners use stances, advanced students use natural postures. And then when yeah. Nakasone had fleshed this out, he uses the phrase, which, which I absolutely love. He said, um, karate has many stances, it also has none. So the, the, the objective is of the stances, it's just to show a beginner how to move their, the weight in a given instance. But when we apply it, then it, we're freely moving. We're not locking into position. So I, I do this thing where I, I at seminars, which tends to... Um, People tend to, to like it. And when you and I met at Mark McYoung's place, I actually taught this then, and it seemed to go down well to people as well. I call it my golf swing cutter. So, see, you know, mm-hmm. if you learn to hit with a golf club, then you've got three essential positions for a basic golf swing. You've got the backstroke, the point of contact, and the follow-through. So you could look at those three individual postures and and you could freeze frame them if you wished. But when you actually hit the ball, the aim is to flow right through all those postures. So those postures are are there because if they're not, the ball will go all over the place. But you don't freeze frame on them. The the, the movement is is fluid. And as you say, it's it's how you're getting from one to the other that's key. And just by freeze framing those positions, it can help map the road out for beginning students. But ultimately, it's the free-flowing movement that we're after
1: yeah i I remember the workshop i was there i didn't i don't think i don't remember if i participated or not i think i was a little bit late and i just watched uh but indeed and everybody everybody really enjoyed it uh and um i also enjoy the analogy like you say the golf swing i use a slightly different one for a similar concept and and i call it uh, the formula one concept and that means that if you want to win a formula One race you have to go as quickly as possible but you have to stay on the track if you go off the track well you can (laughs) but you're going to be really slow everybody's going to pass you so you're going to lose and and the second point is that you have to hit the checkpoints you have to pass underneath um the 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 checkpoint so that 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 it's still valid uh, and then we can they can measure your time and for us in the forms it's very similar you have to stay on the road uh because that's uh, road is curvy and sometimes you slow down sometimes you speed up but you have to hit the checkpoint every single time or it doesn't count, you get disqualified. And the checkpoint for us is the end posture. But the whole point is that okay, you don't stop at the checkpoint. It, you you can go you can blast right through <laughs> at, at top speed, but you have to get there. And and one of the key things that, that you see students do, and I'm sure when you teach Kata it's the same thing, is that they cut movements off to get to the next one. And 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 yes. as a result, the form becomes really bad because and, if, and then they do the opposite thing, they pause way too long at the, at the, the, the end point, and then it becomes stilted and stiff.
0: Yeah, that's a brilliant analogy. I'm stealing that.
1: Go ahead, go right ahead. <laughs> that's really good. Yeah,
0: no, I agree with that completely. It works well. I like that a lot, yeah.
1: Okay, well, um, is, there, is there anything else that you want to mention regarding the bunkai and your approach to that? I think we covered quite a bit of ground um is there anything that you know i you have a bunch of dvds um and and other material and books out and, and so on so I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes uh for, or on your website but is there for instance like one of the videos or books what would you recommend people who want to start uh learning your approach to bunkai where, where can they start uh which which products would you uh recommend i know this is hard to do because people ask that of me also and it's hard to say we'll start with this one because they're, they're obviously all great but yeah where should they start, do you think?
0: Well, I, I, th- I think um, it, it, well, it obviously depends on what style, what forms you do, but, but I think the best place if people are totally new to this and and have have no kind of um, experience of this at all, I have a free uh, ebook uh, on my website called an Introduction to Applied Karate. That if people sign up to the newsletter, it, it gives them it for free because um, that that includes the the points that we've been talking about and it explains the four stage model and and stuff so I wrote it I don't know what it is now 10 12 years ago but but it, it's still a kind of good um overview of the approach so I'd I'd start there if I was people just if they go to my uh, Ian i a i n and sign up for the newsletter they'll they'll get that free uh, e-book and that that's probably the best place for people totally new to it to begin
1: okay well, I just looked that up, and I I made a note for uh, including that in the show notes. So that that's great, and then people can you know get a get a good sense of uh, how to get started. All right, that's excellent. Anything else you want to add? No, no, no. I think that I think that,
0: um, I think that uh, we've covered those topics quite nicely. I think.
1: Okay, excellent. Uh, I agree. Well, if um, one we've done that, so what I'd like to do is if move on to uh, the Q and A part. So uh, I opened up the questions. As I tend to do, uh, first of all, of, of course, to my Patreon supporters, uh, but also of my on my Facebook page. So I'm gonna, I'm just gonna shoot, and uh, and we'll see, um, we we'll see how far we get. Um, first one is one of my patrons, uh, Jakob Poli. He asks, what of your work would you recommend to martial artists not practicing karate? For instance, uh, Jakob is like like I am a practitioner of Tai Chi Chuan. We also have a kata, uh, a form, but it's quite different. So is there anything of your work that you could recommend for people like us or people from other styles?
0: Yeah, I'll probably, again, I'll point people towards that that free ebook again, I think, just to get the kind of overview. Uh, And and if that seems all elementary and self-explanatory, I I did a a DVD a few years ago called uh, Beyond Bunkai, which looks at the applications of of Nahanshi Techie, but it's done in a semi-live way which means that when I start moving, I have no idea what my training partner is going to do, what he's going to permit, what he's going to kill, and I have to float to the right part of the kata. So I think a, a, a good illustration of, um, on that DVD, you'll see the solo form, you'll see the techniques, but you'll see how we can drill it in, in live ways as well. So that would be a good kind of overview and give you an idea of how rough and ready traditional karate should look when it's when it's applied. So i I'll probably head, head for that one. The Beyond Bunker. There's a YouTube channel as well, of course, Practical Katabunkai. Bunkai, and there's there's just any amount of stuff on there. I think it's 200 plus videos. So this that would be a good place for people to have an explored and see what takes the takes the fancy on there as well.
1: Okay, that that sounds really good. All right, then moving on uh, to the the next question. That one is from uh, Wiebe Lindemann. Uh, we Wee asked actually three questions, but we have a bunch to go through. So Wiebe, I'm sorry, but I'm just gonna pick one. Um, and I really wanted to ask you this one. Uh, I'll read it first. So it's about time management. we says, my day is full yet. Somehow it doesn't seem efficient. Uh, any advice is welcome, uh, both from uh, Ian's current life as a karate teacher, uh, but also family man in your previous life working uh, uh, as an electrician, job planning, life planning, how to get a job done properly, uh, do the dishes, make your bed, and so on, all that stuff. <laughs> you've, you've got a very hectic life. And, and I wanted to ask you this question because many of the listeners do not appreciate how hard you work because you put out a ton of content, a lot of content and consistently over the years. And that takes a lot of preparation, a lot of work, just making videos sometimes. And you know what it's like. I mean, the the, the angle is mm. off, the lighting is off, something goes wrong on a computer and you have to start from scratch. Writing writing books, writing articles, it, it it's a lot of work. So how do you plan your life? Uh, so you've got good time management, so you can do all that. And obviously also, you know, uh, you know, have have a personal life as well.
0: Yeah, I, I am just try, In the interest of full disclosure, I'll, I'll and I, I am probably not the world's most organised man. Um, so <laughs> I, I I tend to work long hours, and I'm pretty sure that I'm not working as efficiently as as, as, I, as I I could. Uh, but my mantra, the one I try, and I don't always follow to it, but but, but it, it was a friend of mine who told me this, and I just thought that's that's genius. Where you used to say. Uh, first things first, second things never. And I thought, yeah, that's, that's the way to do it. So, what, what I tend to do is, okay, what needs done now? What's the most important thing that needs done now? Right. Everything else can wait. I'm going to do that thing. When that thing's done, right. What's the first most important thing I can do now? So, th- there's always, you know, priorities. So, I've got like, I'm, I know there's 80 odd emails sitting in my inbox that haven't been answered for about a fortnight because I've been busy doing other things. I, i've got, i'm behind on quite a few things but um, this morning i had a couple of tasks that i needed to do so they're the first things they' are what gets done and i'll get to everything else when I, when, I, when i get to it and it's the same when it comes to spending time with the, with the family as well so um like once we've, we've finished this you know we're, i'm gonna go for a meal with the family and we' have a night with them because that's the most important thing to do at that point of time so uh, there's there's the edit, videos that need edited and there's podcasts that need edited and there's articles that need written but at that point the most important thing is uh, spending time with Becky and Evie, so 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 that's what I'm going to do. So that's that's how I try and do it. But I'm, I'd hate to give the impression that I'm some kind of well-oiled, super slick machine, <laughs> because
1: uh,
0: <laughs> that's that's not that's, that's not the way it is. I, I, I I'm sure I again work very long hours. I'm sure I'm not that efficient. Um, uh, people who train with me regularly will tell you that I'm, I can be quite forgetful and I need reminded about things a, a, an awful lot. But um, I have a high work ethic and I try and prioritize what needs done at that given moment. And that's, that's probably the only worthwhile advice I could give on that.
1: Oh, it's quite good and, and, and I'll, uh, I'll I'll uh, um, cop to the same thing that I'm, I'm I'm also not by far not the most organized person in the world. My girlfriend will attest to that because she actually is <laughs> and, and I drive her nuts sometimes. <laughs> uh, actually what what I suspect that you can do that I'm also quite good at is really focus on that one thing. And just get all to the level of almost hyper focus uh, when you put your mind to it. That you work on it, then, then you're really into it, and then you can you can push really hard and uh, make a lot of progress. Is it. Would that be accurate in your case?
0: That, that would definitely be true that would definitely be true uh, and that, that's um it, it's both a, it can be both a strength and a weakness because sometimes I, I can get yeah. it lost in the minutiae of a project and lose the big picture you see but 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 being yeah. aware of that and, and like you i'm I'm looking to have a partner who's aware of all my foibles and failings and can kind of <laughs> correct me when I'm, I'm i'm headed down that path you know but no yeah. but de- definitely what i've got when i've this is the job that needs done, then then I'm like a, a dog with a bone with it. You know, I've, I've got it and it, I'm not letting go until I'm finished.
1: Yeah, no, it makes perfect sense. And I'll, I'll quickly add a story that, uh, for will. I once heard an interview with a guy. He, he had become a, a marketeer on the internet, I think, and it was really successful. Um, and somebody asked him, okay, what's the secret of your success? And he says, well, I spent a large part of my life in the military. And one of the things that I learned there was to do the things that I really hated doing. And I got quite good at that. And so a lot of my business success is kind of like you said. Okay, this is a priority. I may not enjoy this. I may really want to go play video games, <laughs> but uh, this needs to be done now. And actually, develop the self-discipline to do the stuff you really don't want to do. So, um, and and that's something that I I often have to remind myself of. Like, okay, now I really want to go write that article because I've got a great idea and so on. But nope, I need to do the, all the boring editing part first, which I really hate but uh, that needs to be done because podcast has to go out tomorrow. So, uh, and I think that's, that might help also for you to, uh, you know, get better at time management. So if you combine both our stories and, and, uh, and points, I, I think he, he uh, might find it helpful. Yeah. no,
0: I, Yeah, no, I, I would agree. I, I, I remember um, uh, th- that's a fr- friend of mine. I, I think he got it from a book. Another friend who said, uh, um, if you, if someone said to you, you know, you've got to eat, eat a frog tomorrow. So you've, you've got to eat a frog. Well, he's tired. Well, why would you want to leave it to the end of the day? Because you just worry, you know, the first thing you get up in the morning, you eat the frog. So his thing was, if you've got a horrible task to do, do that task first and then, you know, you can enjoy the rest of your day. And it tends to be that way with with me as well, you know. So, okay, if, if that's a bit I don't want to do, but that's a number one priority, then it just needs to get done. And then I can get to the things that I enjoy doing, knowing that it's, it's done, you see.
1: Yeah, no, I agree with that. All right, excellent. So um, moving on to some of the questions that I got on my Facebook page. The first one is from uh, Bonzi. Uh, Bonzi, I hope I pronounced that that correctly because it's got uh, an accent on the O and I don't know what to do with that. So Bonzi West, ask Ian how, as a practitioner of martial arts for both combat sports and self-protection, how he plans to separate the combat sports techniques from coming out instinctively while under the stress of uh, self-protection scenario.
0: Yeah, well, I think the thing is I I really, because I I really do try and keep them as separate. I mean, if, if someone watches... The YouTube videos I think that comes across quite strongly because you'll hear me say things like this is self-defense technique this is a fighting technique this is what you know I, I try and keep them separately and we drill them separately too so we have self-defense based drills where the objective is on you know getting to safety and securing safety and then we have fighting drills where the objective is to you know beat your partner in a, a, a given way and I think if you keep them separate there's not that chance of the same bleed over because the self-defense scenario is so different from a like a, a, a spar or a consensual fight. They're so radically different that it would be a little like saying, you know, if you were playing table tennis and rugby, are you likely to tackle somebody in the middle of a table tennis game? Well, I would suggest not, you know. So you just keep them separate. And the illustration I always use for that is I've got a friend up in Scotland who was on the Scottish, uh, Craig Penman, who was on the Scottish national team for years teaches sport karate but also teaches like a self-defense side of it and I was sitting on one of his grading panels once and they were doing these, um, the, the, the sparring and he said right I want you to do you know this self-defense based style you know escapes and, and all that kind of stuff and they did them just fine he says right okay now I want you to do competition style sparring and they ju- did that just fine and they just jumped between the two and not once did they mix the two up because the practice yeah. is two separate disciplines and I think that's the problem that people get is when they're not quite sure what they're training for so there's a confusion in practice and then that obviously leads to a confusion in, or can lead to a confusion in application as well. I think.
1: Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. That uh, that uh, something that I also get at because I teach uh, both a traditional self-defense oriented uh, martial art, and my second class is a mixed martial art class, which is purely purely competition. And and uh, it, it's true you you have to separate them. Uh, I always separated my self-defense and traditional styles from whatever combat sport that I was uh, I was training in, whether it was. Uh, uh, Sancho Sanda back in the day, uh, Muay Thai, kickboxing, and so on. I saw this as a completely different discipline. There's a lot of overlap, obviously, but it's like you say, it's, it's, you have to separate the two. So, like you said earlier, uh, during the, during the interview, is that you, you focus on the problem first and then you, you figure out, okay, what do I need to, f- to fix that problem or to handle it? As opposed to looking at which tool do I have and I really, really want to use this tool, even though it doesn't really fix the problem. Um, which, which is, you that know, <laughs> doesn't make sense, but <laughs> okay, moving on. Next question, uh, is from Animesh Ghosh and he asks how gross motor skills and fine motor skills correlate in terms of Bunkai practice.
0: Yeah, I, I think, um, but most of the motions that will survive, um, stress, uh, are gross motor movements as well. So we can have fun learning finite little skills for the, the art of it. But but in in terms of application, it's those those gross motor movements that are going to be key. But I, so from the the cutter perspective and the bunkai perspective, what we're trying to do is it's those gross motor skills, those big movements that we're looking at. We're trying to get them as efficient as we can when we do them. So um, we don't mean when I say gross motor skills, I don't mean clumsy movements. I mean it's like a, running is a gross motor movement, but if you look at the running technique of an Olympic athlete, that's far greater than it is when I you know plod along the road. So we, we, we're we trying to get the the highest level of skill possible. And, and the idea is to try and build a bit of slack into the system. So that the, my instructor, main instructor always used to say, you know, try and get your technique to be a 10 out of 10, because in reality it's probably going to drop to a six. If it's already a six, it's going to drop to a one or two or the, the realms of unworking. So we, we're trying to get a really efficient, gross motor movements in training so that when we add in the stress, you know, it's still there and it's still functional, even though obviously it won't be as refined due to all the variables we've just introduced.
1: Yeah. No, makes makes perfect sense uh okay i'll move on and this is uh the final question so this one is from uh, thomas Milbrot and he asks uh, in the areas of cell defense training but also defensive tactics tactics traditional martial arts often get criticized for not considering the adrenal stress response so what would your thoughts thoughts be on that uh how do you think was this addressed uh, back in the day when the traditional systems were created or do you have any sources for the way of training looked at uh, in in the old days, uh, as opposed to the more recent uh, interpretations. So, how do traditional athletes yeah, well, handle that? Go ahead.
0: Yeah, well, I think they they the, the definitely back in the past didn't understand it as well as we did, do today. You know, so um, the the level of science we've got, the understanding of the hormonal system, the way the body responds to the stress, has been studied in great depth. And, and of course in the modern world that information is widely communicated and widely distributed. So I, I I I if the old masters were alive today, then they'd be looking at this material that we've got nowadays and trying to, to work it in. So and I would agree with the observation that most traditional martial artists don't consider it. So I mean so here in the the UK during the nineteen nineties, you know, two of my main instructors, you know, Jeff Thompson and Peter Constantine, they 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 wrote about this extensively, you know, the the need to do it. And one of then what happened is people just started playing it lip service so they'd say oh you know like, yeah and don't forget about the effects of fear but they still weren't studying it to any sufficient depth so i would say that problem still exists in, you know the way people practice even though they might give it a little bit of, of lip service now you know so so I would definitely something we want to be thinking about definitely something we want to consider the old masters didn't understand it as well as we do today because we've got the better of the science however when we look back at the old, the, the stuff that the old masters used to train about, they'll talk about, you know, a uh, uh, mindset. The idea of uh, they did a lot of live drills. Funakoshi, the father, father of modern karate, talks about practicing escaping from groups um, when he was a kid in Okinawa. Okay, you know, doing live drills, kicking and punching one another, fighting to unconsciousness or submission is what he said. And he said, he said, I can think of no better way than this to learn to defend against multiple opponents. So so back in the day, you know, they they, they were doing uh, practices that would in, in, introduce stress and, and would, as, as close as safety would permit, replicate um, uh, live scenarios. But I think in terms of their scientific understanding of what was going on and how we can most efficiently train for that, I think we've superseded that, and we should acknowledge that, I think.
1: Yeah, you know, I, I agree with that. I, I think it's, uh, you, you, you mentioned it really, really well, is that... Um like you said funakoshi training to to fight your way out of a group and and which is basically stress inoculation training you get used to the chaotic environment of uh of a multiple opponent scenario and and uh deal with it <laughs> but you know win or or fail doesn't matter but you you deal with it you work with it and and try to uh try to find solutions within the art that that you practiced um the the, the other thing that i would add to that is is that times were different back then Uh, We live in in an age where violence is looked at as something really, really bad. Uh, And uh, Mm. I'm I'm not going to call it positive side, but, you know, uh, if we can agree that everybody has a right to live, then I think the logical conclusion is that everybody has a right to defend his own life, which means that using violence to defend yourself should be an integral part of it. Um, but we live in a society in the West where this is not really accepted anymore. And and you say you hear the whole uh, the thing of violence never solved anything, which is complete nonsense. Because in, if you've got a knife, somebody coming at you to to gut you with a knife, well, violence is going to solve it. I'm not singing kumbaya at the campfire. <laughs> but I digress. Um, but but people lived in a very different society back then, uh, where violence was a lot more prevalent. And and throughout the ages, when you go back. A couple hundred years um, in in uh, in time, I, even here in Europe, it was a lot more violent then, and, and violence was just a part of life. Uh, and mm. to that degree, I think maybe people needed less of an understanding of just how dangerous things can get, um, and what when violence is concerned. Whereas nowadays, for a lot of people, it's very academic, and and it's a little bit taboo also. So you don't really don't mm. really need to know anymore and you don't really want to know cuz it's scary whereas if if you lived in a in an, in an age where uh you know uh, um there there were marauding groups just plundering the land and so on mm. well you click quickly survived or died then adapted so uh mm. it's uh it's like you said it it's they're they're not stupid the masters back in the day i'm mm. sure they figured out that you know dealing with uh the adrenal stress response was a part of it and maybe they didn't have the, the, the the scientific explanation, but I'm sure they they know what it felt like.
0: Oh yeah, I mean, that, that, you know, it, and I think when you, when you read um, their writings, you can you can see that. But but it, I think part of the trouble is if you haven't got as you say, if you haven't got that understanding, and you read it, you'll miss it. You know, you you won't you won't because yeah. people do. You know, if you look at the way that. Um, pretty much all of them explain, you know, the nature of self-defense, what the objectives are, what your goals are, what's most efficient. Um, one of the things I always find quite remarkable is that there's not the thickness of a hair between what they're saying and what modern day uh, reality self-defense practitioners are, are, are saying either. They just use different language to express it, I think. Yeah. Um, but but I think you're right. You probably need spelled out for people a little bit more these days, which is why I think some of the you know scientific language can, can help with, with that, you know.
1: Yeah. Well, i agree with that and uh, is there any book or something like you meant you, you said you mentioned that you know when you read their writing uh you have to look for it but it's there any books that you know top of your head that you could recommend on that front
0: there's there's loads i mean part of the the the, the issue with a lot of the the books by the um the old masters uh you a lot of it's just like you know he's how to make a fist and He's out to build a makiwara and, you know, the, the stuff stuff like that. And then every so often when you're reading through it, there's these, these gems that like, oh, there we go. You know, so um, yeah. the, the, like M- Motobu would be a good guy to look at. He's, um, M- Motabu was a guy yeah. who he fully understood. I mean, he said nothing is more harmful to mankind than a martial art that can't work in self-defense. Um this is a so if if you check out his writings, I think the easiest probably translation is uh, Okinawan Kempo is is one of his books was translated as I think you find that easily enough on on Amazon. I bought a hardback copy in the 1980s when they said they were going to make 2000 of them and no more. And since then they've released it in paperback and you can just buy it at a fraction of the cost. But, <laughs> um, so you can get a paperback version of it and, and, and that would be, yeah. So I, I, you know, spent an absolute fortune on it for a certificate and everything else that came with it. But, but if you read through his writings, he gets it. And what, what, again, there's a nice, easy way for people. I did a, a podcast a few years ago called, uh, the Masters speak. And, and on that one, I, I drew out all of the kind of key, well, not all of them, but a lot of the key phrases that I thought people would find useful that the past masters had said and people would find insightful. So if they just Google my name and the Masters speaker podcast, it will come up, have a listen to that, and that will direct them towards the books that, um, you know, they may want to read a little bit more about those those choice cuts I've, I've pulled out for the quotations.
1: Okay, and and I'll look that up and put that in the show notes as well if I can find it. So, uh, so, Thomas, you, you just check that out and everybody else check that out and in the show notes on my blog, um, where uh, if I can find it, I'll put all the links there where, where people can find it. And, um, I really, I, I have to go, go listen to that that podcast episode because I don't recall it, um, but uh, it, it, there's actually quite a, a book as well called like that, if I'm not mistaken, The Master Speak. Um, and if I'm not mistaken, it was about Charles um a well-known uh, writer who passed away uh, not that long ago, and it's about um, the Ushideshi, the the students of uh, uh, Morihei Ushiba uh, before the first world war, or the second world war, who were with him in the beginning, and and they talk about what it was like to train with him, and everybody wants to be how he was at the end of his life, and all about love and harmony. <laughs> he, he was a a brutal a brutal practitioner when he was younger, and he was strong as hell. Uh, and, and they talk about the, what it was like to train with that guy. And, uh, yeah, I, I think he understood adrenal stress quite well. So I think that your podcast episode might be quite interesting for people, uh, also looking into that. Excellent. All right. Um, well, uh, before we wrap it up, Ian, um, what are you working on right now? What do you, you got any upcoming books, videos, um, events, uh, anything that you you're, you want to mention?
0: Yeah well I I yeah I've um, the main um, project I've I've got a, a series of um DVDs uh, that I'm working on the first ones already out the second two will be out soon on the uh, throws and takedowns of of old school karate so I I've broken them up by throws that lift throws that block the path of legs and throws that disrupt posture uh, people might be interested in those. In each of those, as well as showing the throw itself, I've got the photographs of the old masters doing it, references to where you can find it in the old texts. You know, so because sometimes people think you know that karate doesn't have a significant throwing component, and obviously they're not the you know as well developed as the throws of judo, but they're still you know nice effective throws. So that might be of interest to people. And my main project, which has been ongoing project, is my uh, my app. So there's an Ian Abernethy app which people will be able to find via the you know Google Play or or the App Store. Um, and i add to that each week i'm really proud of that because there's just this i mean i don't believe it's possible for people to watch all the videos are on there i don't think there would been enough hours in the day so we're just every week we add something new to it and we've you know all categorized for pad drills and fitness conditioning drills and kind of bunk eye drills general concepts all this kind of stuff so people can scroll through it and loads and loads of videos on it so that's been a labor of love for about 18 months now and i'm you know really really proud of that so that's, that's one of the main projects at the moment
1: yeah I I wanted to mention that because I think you're you're um, um I know there's there's other people who've put out apps and and so on but I think the way that you're you're handling this one is really good because there's there's like you said there's so much content in there it's at your fingertips you just take out your your, your phone or, or your tablet and and you've got it right there you can you know you go to your garage to train it's all right there you want to grab a partner and training class uh it's a, it's a really uh extremely practical and, and well done resource so i i want to recommend everybody to check that out and i'll put again i'll I'll put the the links to that in the show notes because um, i really think that's that's like uh th- that's taking the all the advantages of the technology we have in 2018 now and and just using it to uh to spread the the, the information that other, otherwise people would have to they have to show up at your class and seminars that's the only other way to do it <laughs>
0: Well, and then that's, a, the, for example, one one of the sections I've got on the app is what I call the, the almost live section. So if, I, if I've done something in the, in the dojo or the seminar, I think ah, people might like that. I'll film it and throw it up on the app so people get to see what I've taught normally within 24 hours of me teaching it. So I, I did one yeah. uh, pad drill. It was some knees, elbows, and a takedown. Uh, I, I I taught it on a Thursday night. I uploaded it onto the app uh, first thing Friday morning. Uh, on Saturday afternoon, I got an email from a guy in Canada saying, uh, here's my students doing your drill. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, like, wow, you know what I mean? In, in the modern age. Yeah. So like, you know, w- within 48 hours, a, a drill that I taught my own students that they just learned it's a simple enough drill, but they just learned it 48 hours beforehand. And then it's, it's you know, it's, it's on the other side of the Atlantic. So I thought, yeah, it's a great age we live in when it comes to learning martial arts and sharing information.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. And again, I'll put the link in the show notes and everybody go check out the, uh, Ian's app. Cause it's, it's really awesome. um, all right, so I think we're closing in on the one-hour mark. Um, anything else you want to mention, Ian? Any last words uh, you want to leave the listeners with? No, no, no. Just
0: just, just obviously thank you for the opportunity to uh, to talk. It's nice to talk to you. And I hope that there's something in that that's of interest. If, if people have any questions around it or there's anything that they, they would like more clarity on, my, my email address is uh, Ian, spelled I-A-I-N, at Ian, spelled the same way, Abernethy, A-B-E-R, N E T H Y dot com. So if it's Ian, Ian Abernethy dot com, and if I can help, I'll be, be happy to do so.
1: Okay. And, and um, are there any other ways that people can contact you, uh, your site or Facebook page, or what, what would work best for you?
0: Yeah, so there's, um, uh, but basically, like uh, on um, F- Facebook, it's um, uh, uh, facebook.com forward slash Ian uh, Twitter, I'm at Ian Abernethy. Instagram is at Ian Abernethy. Uh, and the website is uh, either ianabbeneti.com or uk, It'll take you to the same place. So there, there, there. Lots of things. You know, lots of ways that people can can get in touch. And if what I do is of interest, there's lots of ways that I can just, you know, follow one of those, and they'll, they'll get to see all the stuff that we're we're putting out. You know.
1: Okay. Excellent. And uh, again, I'll I'll link to all that uh, in the show notes, so people can go there there directly. All right. Well, uh, Ian, I want to thank you very much for your time. Uh, I know you've got a lot of stuff to do, but I really appreciate appreciate the time you took to, uh, uh, you know, be on the podcast and answer all the questions. Um, I hope we can do this again sometime in the future, uh, and uh, I'm, I'm sure I'll get quite a lot of reactions on uh, on all the answers that you gave to the people who asked the questions. So, so, so thank you again. Yeah, my pleasure. Loved it. Yeah. Speak soon. Okay. Excellent. And we're going to wrap it up. Thanks for listening to the Wim Demir podcast. For more information, go to
0: www.wimsblog.com.